Covid has been called a lot of things, but a group of prominent investigators have now labeled it a war. As big a global fight as World War II. What else can we call a pandemic that has caused over 1 million deaths in the United States and as many as 20 million worldwide? But what are the lessons from the war and are we following them? Here to answer those questions is Philip Zelico with the COVID Crisis Group. He's the lead author of their book, Lessons from the COVID War, published by Public Affairs. We point out in the report that um, community health workers can play this extraordinary role, but currently are limited by design in where we can actually set up, you know, the federally qualified health FQHC system. And we say that right now by design, community health workers are only available to about 9% of the American population. That's your 30 million people. And, but where we had them, they were really effective. And that's like a huge innovation that should punch out to us as a lesson from this war. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Professor Zelico, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Glad to be with you. That's great. You know, we recognize many of the book's co-authors from their interviews with us during the past three years. And we preface our first question by noting that you have served in Republican administrations. And that's why perhaps the most controversial part of the book is where you state that then President Trump abdicated his duty of national leadership. The book refers to him as a, quote, comorbidity uh, in this crisis. Yet the Washington Post book review says the book goes too far to minimize Trump's role. How do you react to that charge? I think people just can uh, read the book and and judge for themselves. Um, You can just you just have to break it down and analyze it. It, It's not President Trump's fault that um, our leading experts called uh, the pandemic a low risk, quote unquote, all through February of 2020. That wasn't President Trump's call, although he also wanted to downplay and minimize the virus. Um, It wasn't President Trump's fault that we had no ability to partner with private industry to mass produce tests. It wasn't President Trump's fault that we had no plan to use the tests that we did produce. It wasn't his fault that we didn't have biomedical surveillance in order to track cases so that authorities were flying blind and responding to the virus. Uh, I could I could go on. Um, the uh, the you, if you no one reading this report will think that President Trump should be anywhere near government. <laughs> so just be clear about this. Um, and by the way, I've worked for both Democratic and Republican administrations. I've held positions at the federal level in five different administrations. But the uh, the if one goes through the the mistake is is that each side then develops its conven- its satisfying narratives of blame. So on the Republican side, it's you know well, let's blame China, or let's blame Tony Fauci. On the Democratic side, it's let's lay it off on Trump. You know, as if if we had had a proper Democratic president, we would have managed this pretty well. And that's fundamentally false. Um, And the the danger in those blame narratives, um, as satisfying as they are psychologically, is that they miss the fact that just structurally and in so many ways, the American system was not prepared to cope with this pandemic. It wouldn't have been prepared to cope with it 
if a Democratic president had been in power. Did Trump make things worse? Yes. Hence the phrase comorbidity. Comorbidity is a condition that increases your chance of, it's a pre-existing condition that increases your chance of death or serious illness. <laughs> Trump was certainly that. But um, if we then think, think that Trump was really the source of the problem, that's a mistake. And actually, if we think that toxic politics was the source of the problem, that's also actually a mistake. The, the report explains fairly carefully that, uh, in fact, toxic politics was often the result of policy failure, not the other way around. That as, as, the, first, as the pandemic unfolded in the spring of 2020, it was obvious that a lot of authorities were flailing around to try to come up with an answer and that they didn't know what to do after the initial set of lockdowns, which is true. And into that void, all the toxic politics could then flow in. Mm -hmm. But there was actually quite a hunger at the outset for uh, among a lot of people to um, listen to and accept um, um, well-coordinated guidance that uh, seemed reasonably well-grounded. I think actually in many ways that willingness to look for guidance and hunger for guidance persists well into 2020. Um, the school closures, for example, by late 2020 and on into 2021 were more the product of the failure of adequate practical guidance. And then that created the paralysis that allowed schools to remain closed while affluent countries all around the world were reopening theirs. Well, I uh, found it interesting that uh, before COVID, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security rated the U.S. as the number one most prepared country uh, for a pandemic, which on all the levels that you've just described, uh, no one was saying that after the pandemic got going. Uh, we didn't have the kind of preparedness other countries did. Um, but we also uh, have seen reported that the National Security Council did have a playbook on fighting pandemics. And you know, I don't know what uh, our listeners know about playbooks, but they're usually extremely detailed and designed as the go-to document to get started right away when something hits. What insights can you shed on the fact that it appears that the Trump administration uh, and the country kind of ignored uh, the playbook that had been developed to fight pandemics? Well, you know, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, um, we actually read the playbook and the report discusses the playbook in some detail. Um, there was no playbook. Uh, uh, there is a document called a playbook. Uh, mm -hmm. If you read that document, what it really is, is it's more of a diagnostic manual about how to classify an outbreak in order to invoke certain authorities. If you're looking for something that diagrams exactly what we will do in the crisis and what all the different agencies are supposed to do, if you're looking for something that provides operational guidance, the playbook, as we say in the report, was, quote, a blank page. It didn't actually draw out any plays. Um, there's a, in fact, uh, later on, there was a, a, quote, unquote, crisis action plan developed in the spring of 2020. But actually, if you sit down and read the crisis action plan, it doesn't actually detail any of the actions that are supposed to be done. Once again, it's basically a process guide for um, how to invoke certain authorities and trying to sort out the alphabet soup of possible agencies to respond. The fundamental problem all through this 
is a lack of preparedness. Mm-hmm. Um, the and in fact, when you look at these documents, they underscore the lack of preparedness. They weren't ignored. Uh, it wasn't that the the veterans in government who were operating this machinery didn't kind of blow off the playbook. That actually they themselves had helped prepare. It's just that the playbook offered really nothing useful to say about how to handle this national emergency. You know, I want to also note that you were you had a bipartisan approach. You also take President Biden and his administration to task. Uh, you highlight their missteps with the uh, COVID uh, treatment, Paxlovid, and with testing, school closing, you mentioned. Uh, take us through your observations about the Biden administration. Well, um, to be fair to the Biden administration, um, they immediately put people, they basically rebuilt the federal crisis management system that had collapsed during the Trump administration. Federal crisis management essentially collapsed, we argue, in April and May of 2020. So the Biden administration rebuilt that mechanism pretty much along the lines of the Burks machinery that was in place by March 2020, and which the Trump administration then effectively discarded. They put a man named Jeff Sines in charge of that. And that machinery did a good job of kind of tactical crisis management, putting out the daily fires, organizing daily updates, and that was helpful. But it didn't really provide powerful strategic insight for broad policies, either globally or nationally, that would be markedly different. Um, what It didn't redress any of the issues of biomedical surveillance and genomic surveillance very well. It actually let the, uh, te- the, the mass production of testing programs substantially expire, which then had to be frantically rebuilt later in the year. Operation Warp Speed had already failed to um, carry out a manufacturing and distribution program for drugs, for therapeutics, like Paxlovid. So, for example, in early 2021, when the Biden administration had to decide whether to make advanced market commitments, like it had on, like Warp Speed did on vaccines, advanced market commitments to buy a lot of Paxlovid, the Biden administration passed on that. So the result then, when Paxlovid was shown to be 90% effective in October, November of 2021, the Biden administration had placed no orders for it. Mm. So it started frantically placing orders for it, but then the Omicron wave hit, and we basically had almost no courses of Paxlovid available to treat patients during the Omicron wave, which probably cost a lot of lives. By the way, the Biden administration, like the Trump administration, never actually gave doctors a lot of practical guidance about how to use some of the treatments that were being approved to treat COVID, like the monoclonal antibodies or Paxlovid, with the result being that actually to this day, most patients who get COVID are not being properly treated with available medications. We've always been glad to have Dr. Fauci uh, as a guest on the show. He's been on a few times, and he recently said to the New York Times, that the country actually could have had the vaccines out there uh, much quicker than it did, and that the phase two safety trial was done by early July 2020. Now, those vaccines, I think we were among the first uh, kinds of organizations to receive them. They arrived on our doorsteps, I think, Mark, was around December 23rd or so. What does your investigation say on this front about that delay when that was such a critical element to get out there as soon as possible? Well, there are, actually, we do have a lot to say about the medical countermeasure story. 
Um, and I think we have the best published account available right now of both the origins of Operation Warp Speed and how it unfolded in both strengths and weaknesses. Um, let's see, a few points. First, you couldn't hurry the approval, the, the FDA approvals of the vaccines much more than they were hurried um, the FDA was actually pressured to hurry their approvals by Trump administration officials, but because they'd already been pretty spectacularly burned on some controversial drug approvals, actually most recently convalescent plasma, mm -hmm. um, Han, Stephen Hahn and Peter Marks uh, at FDA were kind of reluctant to do anything that would rush the vaccine approvals until they had the trial data which they didn't really get until about October of 2020. Okay. This is point one. Point two, Operation Warp Speed was not mainly a program though that accelerated the R&D efforts. We were lucky that um, there had already been a lot of investment, including government investment on coronaviruses before the pandemic broke. We were lucky that the mRNA platforms turned out to be so effective. But the uh, Pfizer, for example, refused to participate in the R&D part of Operation Warp Speed, but developed its vaccine on the same timetable as Moderna. Uh, where, back, where Operation Warp Speed really scored, and when what accounted for a lot of this delay, is manufacturing at scale and distribution. And Warp Speed did a very good job on manufacturing, including, by the way, manufacturing of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, it did a, a very good job in planning for distribution of the vaccine through the American drugstore system, a plan that actually was aided by a really gifted employee at CDC. Um, so those were success stories. The Operation Warp Speed never really developed a campaign to persuade people to take the vaccines <laughs> to accompany the rollout, and that was one of the places where they let down and the Buy America approach in warp speed would later actually backfire both globally and backfired for American businesses in the vaccine supply chain. But the Dr. Fauci's point tends to focus too much on the R&D side of it and not enough on the fundamental challenges as even once you got the vaccine approved of uh, being able to rapidly manufacture at scale in order to get billions of doses out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about the crisis response and really thinking about it through the political lens of the challenges that our leaders faced. I'm thinking right now uh, you have Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr.'s running in the Democratic primary for president. He's polling about 19 percent. He's a hardcore anti-vaxxer, alleges the government cover up. What do you say to him and those apparently support his perspective? And what type of influence uh, did that large group of Americans have on both administrations as they tried to sort of formulate their policy of how do you respond uh, in this war crisis? Yeah. Um, well, first, the good news is that over the years, people who are experts in crisis communication have developed a really uh, good set of approaches for how to do effective crisis communication. The bad news is that 
during the COVID war, our leaders ignored all of these <laughs> principles. So our, the, the quality of crisis communication and best practices in crisis mm. communication were pretty much discarded and people uh, improvised. And actually the prominence of Dr. Fauci is revealing symptom of the problem in a way. Dr. Fauci should not be the lead crisis communicator ordinarily. He doesn't lead a policy agency. Um, people turned to him because he seemed like he was the only adult voice in the room there for a while. But now, sometime, in my day job as an academic, I usually work as a historian. And if we step back and look at the history of American attitudes towards vaccination, towards public health, you'll see actually that Americans have always been suspicious and distrustful right. of public health authorities. There's always been a lot of unease about vaccination campaigns, even going back to vaccination against smallpox, that sometimes vaccination campaigns were almost done at, at force, forcibly. Um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Before the COVID war, actually, a lot of the criticisms of overweening public health authorities came from academics who were writing from a progressive or leftist um, attitude because they thought that these authorities were often used um, against marginal parts of society, people in slums or tenements and so forth. So the poly there's always been some controversy <laughs> and unease about this in American society. So rather than um, then take the stance that, uh, well, you can't get people to take vaccines, you just have to then make your arguments and you have to work really, really hard at making them. And what we found in the crisis, and this is one of the lessons that shouldn't be forgotten, we're trying that one of the lessons we're trying not to lose is that when we made proper efforts to encourage people to use vaccines, those efforts actually tended to work. These efforts don't consist of getting some authority figure to cut a public service announcement in mass media. The efforts that uh, that tended to work was where people would just take the time to really explain candidly what works and doesn't work about vaccines to people who are trusted intermediaries in local communities. So for instance, a pilot program on this worked with the American Farm Bureau Federation in order to find trusted intermediaries to reach out to people in rural communities around America. Another initiative worked to reach out to urban communities, mm -hmm. for instance, through black churches, leaders there, to deliver personal messages from, from intermediaries who are trusted in those communities. And those sorts of approaches actually worked. And ultimately, vaccine uptake in America actually over time has been very high, at least for the first vaccine, um, getting approaching 90% eventually. But um, so in other words, I'm, I'm not basically dismissing the distrust and skepticism that people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. represent. Rather than dismiss it or look down on that, take that seriously as kind of a constant problem in our society or a constant uh, unease. And then if you've got good scientific evidence and can explain it, do that and take people's concerns seriously and address them. I think a lot of your listeners who work in the medical care field have a lot of experience in how to 
listen to patient concerns, take them seriously and address them. And they probably find that it helps to do that in a person to person way. You're absolutely uh, right about that. And that certainly has been a, a big focus of the work of community-based uh, healthcare organizations uh, in particular. But Philip, um, you've said that America doesn't really have a national public health agency. But I have a feeling a lot of people would say CDC. Isn't that yes. our national including, public health agency? And by the way, including some people at CDC would say that. <laughs> right. Um, but this, I guess the question is, uh, given that one of the elements of a national public health agency is that they would have the capability around the country to make these trade-offs and decision-making around education and economic harm and public health issues, is it your uh, belief, would, your, would you be making a recommendation that Congress should create such a national agency to supplement or to organize the hundreds of local and state health departments and territories that we have now? Now, we don't actually call for creating some giant new federal agency to take over all public health functions. We actually see a lot of strengths in uh, aspects of the federal system. But it's really important to be clear about what we had here in this pandemic. And one of the things that distinguished us from almost all other affluent countries, we had a system designed fundamentally in the late 19th century, structurally an, uh, an 1890s era system confronting a 21st century pandemic. So what does that mean? It means that virtually all operational and executive authority is at the state and local and tribal and territorial level scattered among hundreds of different entities, which are not at all alike. Those entities in turn are chronically underfunded, understaffed. They themselves are entirely detached from the healthcare system, which is where we put most of our money and our energy. And both of those, public health and the healthcare system, which are detached from each other, are also detached from the biopharma industrial complex that then has to manufacture your war-winning weapons in these crises, with no one with with no one having uh, a real system of national executive authority, even at the level of guidance, of effective practical guidance. Um, so CDC actually had this image of itself as the national public health agency, but has no executive authority or operational capability around the country. And in the, when confronted with a national emergency, you know, has uh, boutique disease detectives. And, and so then the issue, first of all, is to say, given our federal system, what should be the roles and missions for the different entities? And we think CDC has a role to play, but probably not as the executive in charge of mapping the overall response. We call for a national health security enterprise concept that probably has some kind of uh, executive guidance that writes sheet music for this complicated orchestra we've got, right? Public health, healthcare, biopharma, at least, you know, the different sections should play a common, uh, should do their roles and missions, but against a common melody. Someone's got to write the sheet music, the orchestra needs a conductor, that probably needs to be in Washington. Um, the Congress has, of course, come up with the idea of creating a new White House czar, which, by the way, the Biden White House didn't want, but now it has. Um, that could actually compound the confusion because it doesn't have operational authority or budget lines. We actually suggested putting 
some of this capability in, in the HHS department with the new undersecretary that could coordinate the baronies uh, between CDC, FDA, NIH, um, the Assistant Secretary for Health, Public Health Service, Office of Global Affairs, um, which it itself is, and then there's the stuff in the Department of Homeland Security and DOD. So we saw the need to do a better job of organizing for a national emergency, but a lot of the authorities that one could wish to have are actually already there in places like the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which does, which right now has a lot of authorities to tell hospitals about the capabilities they need mm -hmm. to have. There are things we could do in the existing system with existing technology to better coordinate the often outstanding electronic health records and data we have in the healthcare system mm -hmm. with the lamentable situation of the data in the public health system. The government itself has not done its own internal after action report to try to figure out how to make all this better. That's partly what, why we wrote our report. Is it's not like the government did this work, knows what to do, but hasn't done it. The government didn't do this work, doesn't really know what to do, and hasn't done it. So we've written this report to make some suggestions about what can be done. And we think actually anyone reading the report will see that there is a ton of low-hanging fruit all over the place that can be done without grand new congressional legislation. So that's that's actually encouraging. That's empowering. Like you don't need a miraculous politics where everyone now comes together in order to make this a lot better. It also all just offers a lot of insights for how to get ready for any major emergency that we might encounter in the future. We called out Connecticut actually as a good state. Um, we talked actually to um, Albert Coe and Indra Nui and uh, folks who were in the, uh, help lead the task force there. The other thing I, uh, I'm, uh, we really, we hit hard the community health worker movement, mm -hmm. which I think is you're, you're uh, alluding to. Um, we make a, we try to make, which has not gotten enough attention except for an Ed Young piece in the Atlantic that was helpful. Um, yeah. And we are, we point out in the report that um, community health workers can play this extraordinary role, but currently are limited by design in where we can actually set up, you know, the federally qualified health FQHC mm -hmm. system. Right. Right. And right. we say that right now by design, commu community health workers are only available to about 9% of the American population. That's your 30 million people. Yeah. yeah. And, but where we had them, they were really effective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's like a huge innovation that yeah. should punch out to us yeah. as a lesson from this war. But to come back to your original question, how scared should we be? There is some new research now in which experts try to estimate the likelihood of, a, of another COVID scale pandemic or worse. And they actually see a pretty large chance of this just in the next 10 years. Right. So uh, they're very worried. There was the fact that um, COVID-19 had a lethality that was about, you know, one fourth yeah. of what the uh, influenza was in 1918, 1919, or about one twentieth of the lethality of SARS-1. This is a kind of biological luck. There's nothing that's, you know, predestined that anything that's contagious can't be virulent. So 
we're just kind of waiting and hoping mm -hmm. and in an environment where for lots of reasons, including genetic engineering advances, um, encroachments on habitat, the dangers of some sort of uh, new biological outbreak um, are greater now than perhaps at any other time in human history. Well, Professor Zelico, thank you for being with us. Thank you for sounding that clarion call for preparedness and better preparedness for what might be ahead of us. And thanks to our audience. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for updates. Our address is chcradio.com. Professor Zelico, thank you to you and to the members of your group that produced the report. We appreciate the contribution that you've made. And what an important, public, what an important public service. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.